So, uh, this evening is part two of three parts as we enter into a study of systematic theology. And for those of you that weren't here last week, let me briefly explain to you uh, the order in which we're doing this and why. Uh, as we do some blocks of systematic theology, we need to figure out what is the authority upon which we make theological assertions. Basically, what are we going to use for our information for theology? If you ever take a systematic theology course somewhere, even if it's an introduction course, which this is essentially modeled after, uh, they'll kind of have a first section that they discuss uh, called prolegomena, where they kind of discuss theological method and the relationship of theological information to philosophical information and logic and things like that that we kind of dabbled in in our apologetic series. And then they'll typically turn to, please don't ever do that again. Then they will <laughs> typically, <laughs> You were that kid in school, weren't you? <laughs> he, told, he told me not to, so now I gotta do it. Jeez, love it, love it. The church is for all kinds of characters. Uh, so what they will turn to next is bibliology. And remember when it comes to studying theology, essentially you stick the Greek word on top of it and then put ology at the end and you've got yourself a theological category. So what we have is bibliology and we're gonna spend a few weeks studying the Bible. Last week, what we established is that the Bible is very special. And that may seem a, a very cheap way of categorizing it, but I mean that in the strongest way you possibly can, that you can mean it, is that the Bible is unique. The Bible is special. There's a reason why we call it the Holy Bible, a book that is specifically set aside for very specific purposes. And we discussed a lot of those purposes and why from both from within the text of the Bible itself and also from outside of the Bible, looking at facts uh, surrounding the Bible, we noticed how special the Bible actually is. So what that leaves us with is two more weeks, uh, tonight, being, uh, tonight being the the second, or I'm sorry, the first of those two more. Uh, and what I'd like to spend our time on this evening is discussing uh, I put kind of the, the main question on the top of your sheet there. How, how do we have the Bible that we have? So we discussed about how special the Bible is last week. But there are still a couple of questions that we want to ask about that. Namely, uh, whether or not you know that you probably have a variety of biblical versions in front of you. You probably know that there are, if you're willing to go with me and say that we have brothers and sisters, even beyond Protestantism into Roman Catholicism, that we have brothers and sisters that believe that there are different books of the Bible that belong in the Bible that may not necessarily be in your Bible. And there's discussion about what actually constitutes the Bible. When Paul writes the words, all scripture is theopneustos, which we talked about last week, is God breathed, it is inspired, God's energy and life force is behind all scripture. What does he mean when he says all scripture? What is the Bible that is so special? And what does that mean for us as we look to the Bible that's in front of us? So that's what we're going to discuss this evening. Um, there, there's a, <clears throat> there are a bunch of categories that don't necessarily string together in the most fluid of ways. But remember, with this being kind of an introductory course, 
uh, I want to expose you to some main areas of questioning and main ways of thinking so that you can understand a little bit more about how we have the Bible in front of us that we actually have. Okay? Clear enough? And all the same rules still apply. If I ask a question, please answer it. If you have a question, please ask it. If I say something wrong, before you go to just directly execute me, if you could just call me out on it, and then we could figure out if I'm wrong, and then we could sort it out, and, uh, and that, that'll be that. So, that being said, I want to start this evening with a quote from a book. I wrote the title of the book at the bottom of the quote. And if you are a person who is seeking a good resource in terms of guidance for how to study the Bible, I may indeed, in, in some point in the future, formulate a course on how to study the Bible for yourself. If I do so, the majority of that will be based off of the structure of this book. I think this is a great book. It is small, it is accessible, and yet it is also thorough and happens to nicely theologically align with where Sierra Bible Church would stand. We have a few copies currently in our bookstore, and I'm sure we could get more if there was a large cry from it, but it's called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. Here's a quote. You have it word for word. I'll just read it out loud. In speaking through real persons in a variety of circumstances over a 1,500-year period, God's word was expressed in the vocabulary and thought patterns of those persons and conditioned by the culture of those times and circumstances. That is to say, God's word to us was, first of all, his word to them. If they were going to hear it, it could only have come through events and in language they could have understood. This uh, hits on two huge concepts of biblical interpretation. If you want the, the $5 words for the evening, they're exegesis and hermeneutics. Exegesis is essentially... Uh, the, the, the process by which we determine what did the text originally mean in its historical context. That's got to be done first if you're really going to study the Bible to try to understand its meaning. And then hermeneutics is the application of where we now take this historical understanding of the meaning of the text and figure out what does that mean for us today. Because what most people have a tendency to do is do that backwards. They read the text and they go, what does this have to do with me right now? And the problem is a lot of the times that makes the assumption that you even understood what the text was saying to begin with. Now, that being said, have there been a variety of times where somebody has picked up a Bible, opened it up, and been led by the Holy Spirit to an accurate knowledge of God through that text with no academic training whatsoever? Absolutely. There are, I'm sure there are many people in this room that have no formal academic training and yet have still seen God use the pages of Scripture to deepen your relationship with Him. I don't mean to minimize that in any way, shape, or form. However, for those who are looking to try to understand the message of Scripture and to really drive deeper, we want to apply some certain principles that have been there. Now, 
that, that seems to kind of go in a different direction of what we're going to do for the evening. Let me connect it for you in terms of what we're going to do. The first question that we need to talk about for the evening is the transmission of Scripture. Because what the question we're ultimately going to try to answer tonight is, why do we have the Bible that we have? Or how do we come to have it? Well, the first thing we've got to recognize is that Scripture, as we have it, was transmitted in original ways to original groups of people for original purposes and then compiled later, right? I, I don't know if you know this, but there is no moment recorded in Scripture where God takes the book you currently have right there in front of you and goes, hey, mankind, here you go, right? That doesn't, doesn't exist. Check me if I'm wrong, but it's not there. Now, there are chunks where God says, hey, write this down. It's going to be important. Okay, and it's written down. But you've got to try to understand that there was a process by which God's message came to the pages you have printed in front of you. Let me show you the major sweeping movements in which this happens. So here's uh, point, point one, ultimately, is to describe the transmission of Scripture from God to man with a specific intent. With a specific intent. God did not just willy-nilly decide what to say. Remember, we are dealing with the ultimately most intelligent being that exists not only within our universe, but actually even outside of the realms of our universe. He, he does not just like randomly decide what to say, when to say it. Everything has a strategy behind it. And the further that you press yourself in your relationship with him to try to understand that strategy, you will grow in your appreciation for God and his purposes and why he did the things that he did. Point A, there are, there are basically three different ways in which scripture was transmitted to the book that we have in front of us. Point A is a direct message. Point A, a direct message. There are a variety of era, uh, areas inside scripture where we got a direct word from Yahweh expressed to telling people to write things down. So based on your knowledge of scripture, um, what would be some examples of that? Ten commandments, right? Write them down. Get, get out the stone tablets and the hammer and the chisel and start getting things down. Okay, what else? Okay, revelation. Good one, right? Angel of the Lord shows up to John and says, hey, write this stuff down. You're going to need it. What else? Yeah, the prophetic books, right? So many of the prophetic books have as kind of the beginning, and the word of the Lord came to so-and-so, and then it gets written down, right? So we have a variety of spots. Good job. A variety of spots in which we have direct messages. So then what that then leaves us with is two other types as well. Point B, indirect messages. Indirect messages. And this I would categorize as historical accounts that were written by an author to relay what occurred. God was still behind it, but there's a lot of scripture that has kind of more as its stated intent. I want to write down the history of what took place, like Luke, right? So Luke even starts his gospel saying, hey, a lot of people have sat down. This is Brad translation for you, okay? A lot of people have sat down and tried to write out this stuff about Jesus, which is really important. I want to write it out in historical order for you to make sure that you fully understand that Jesus is the Son of God. OK, 
Okay, so that's a really big deal for Luke. But there are a variety of other books. Think of some other ones. Same, same out. Acts, okay, another book written by Luke to try to describe what happened in the early church. What else? Going back to what Nancy said, though, wouldn't parts of Luke also be direct? Like where you have things that Jesus, you know, even though Luke was second party, his intent was to try to collect from firsthand witnesses exact Quotes. No question. So, so a sense of quotes when Jesus says whatever in Luke, would those then be viewed as direct? Okay, so um, let me back up. Essentially, the question is, if it's a direct quotation, does that mean that it's a direct message according to how we're dividing it? I'm going to say, according to how I'm dividing it for the evening, no. A direct message as I'm laying it out uh, is... Uh, that which was specifically stated by God and said, hey, write this down. So he was specifically telling the recipient of the message, you're going to want to write this down and give this to other people. Whereas there were indirect moments where God still spoke, such as the direct quotations of Jesus, that somebody then wrote down and handed over to Luke, and Luke put them in his gospel according to his historical account. That was not Jesus wasn't constantly walking around Galilee saying, hey, everybody, write down what I'm about to tell you. Instead, he actually would move from city to city and say what we can see from the text as you start to study it. He would give similar messages in different areas. It was meant initially as a verbal message, and then people started to write it down, recognizing this is good stuff, and we better make sure that we have this. So this is not some like... Um, this is not a division, this A, B, and C that we're laying out here. This is not a division that's given by Bible scholars. This is just how I'm explaining how God's mission, I'm sorry, God's message came to us in the Bible in three different ways. So A is direct message, B is indirect message, and then C, it seems like what we have left, oh, I'm sorry, let's go back to B real quick just so that we have some other examples because we didn't lay them all out. What's that? Besides, besides Luke, right? So what would be other types of information that's written down in the scripture that wasn't necessarily God saying, hey, write this down, but we have it and have discovered that God actually was speaking through it. Okay, so the wisdom literature. Yeah, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. You know, God never specifically told those people, hey, let's write this stuff down. And even... As you start to study, say, the book of Proverbs, there are Proverbs that are collected even from other cultures that are compiled, at least the ideas are compiled in the book of Proverbs. God's still speaking to mankind, but not with the direct stated intention of, hey, write this down, the people have to hear this. How about dream accounts? Um, so... I would probably put dream accounts in the ind indirect um, concept because the one that's at least uh, one that's coming to my head primarily right now is the book of Daniel, where much of the book of Daniel is him recording the dreams that he had. And then some of it is interpreted and some of it is not. Um, so I think that you could probably put that in the category. I think that's good. Good. Uh, <clears throat> That I would probably categorize, the rules in Leviticus, I'd probably categorize more as direct, right? Um, because God not only explicitly stated those things and told Moses to write them down, but then on top of that, told the people, hey, write these things down, 
uh, get those in the phylacteries you're wearing, things like that. Uh, so section C here, the last category would be what I'm going to call the epistolary messages. Epistolary, E-P-I-S-T-O-L-A-R-Y. I'm not sure if that's a word, but it's going to be for our purposes. Uh, I had a teacher in college that said that once you've studied something and talked about it for so long, uh, if, if you need to make up a word, you're allowed to as long as it fits the text. So I, I still live by that school of thought. Um, you can crucify him instead of me. Uh, the epistolary messages were letters written with a specific purpose at the time, but we've discovered that those specific purposes have ended up being really useful to the life of the church. Um, can you think of some off the top of your head? Paul's letters, right? Paul wrote a bunch of letters. The majority of the New Testament is actually Paul's letters to specific churches. But other people, Peter wrote some letters. Yeah, James wrote some letters. Uh, John wrote, wrote some letters. Uh, we, have, we have a lot of letters. Uh, and those letters were used by God to express the things to mankind that needed to be expressed. Ultimately, it's uh, what we're trying to answer is how is it that the words of God came to the pages of this book? And it seemed like that's kind of like the main ways in which we have what we have. So the question then that we turn to is then how do we decide what parts are scripture uh, and, and how did they figure out what books of the Bible belong in this book? I'm sure that you are aware that this book is comprised of a bunch of smaller books inside of it, right? And those smaller books are also organized into the Old and the New Testament, and you'll see that abbreviated throughout the sheet, uh, the OT and the, and the NT. <clears throat> and so ultimately what we want to ask is what is the, and here's the theological term, the canon of Scripture, the canon of Scripture. Um, point A, uh, just real quick so that we all understand the term that we're using, canon uh, is a, a transliteration from a Greek word that essentially meant the rule or the measuring stick and has come to be used by the church as the collection of what belongs in the Bible, what books or letters or history belongs in the Bible, what's worthy of being inside the covers. Um, so how, did, how was the canon created? Um, so first of all, let's look at the Old Testament because those books showed up first. Uh, the Old Testament canon. So uh, officially speaking, there's not one specific point that you can look to that is universally stated by scholars or Jews or Jewish scholars or whatever category of people you want to consult. There's not one specific point where they go, hey, the collection of the Old Testament, the Old Testament canon ended right here. However, there are some signposts that I want to point you to. Number one, uh, that Philo and Josephus, uh, who were both uh, first century Jewish historians, they both attest that the completion of the Hebrew canon uh, was prior to 100 AD. Now, that's th just remember where your numbers are. If you're not a number person like me, you have to stop and think. But we're talking that that's about 60 years after the death of Jesus, give or take. 
here's what's being said here. Not that they're saying that the Old Testament canon was closed at 100 AD. It's that when they are writing during their time frames, the 90, uh, 90 AD, 100 AD, etc., when they're writing during that time frame, they are making the assumption within their Jewish writings that no one was looking for more books that belonged in the Old Testament canon, that they were working off of the assumption that the Old Testament canon was already closed, that Genesis to Malachi was the collection that needed to be made and there was no extra stuff. That's notable because these were historians of the day. But let's push a little bit farther. Point A, most scholars believe that it may have been considered closed by 400 BC, roughly 400 BC. So uh, theologians and biblical historians essentially make um, really, uh, they make categories of the time frame of the Bible. So they kind of have the Old Testament period that they would divide up into other chunks. Then they have what they call the intertestamental period. And then they have the New Testament period. Ultimately, you probably should be able to figure this out. The Old Testament period is taking place during what types of books? Not a trick question. Good. There we go. There we go. Pick the low-hanging fruit. Enjoy it. The Old, the Old Testament. The New Testament period was happening primarily during what type of books being written? The New Testament. More people are pulling off the low-hanging fruit. This is good. Okay, so now we're going to go to the middle of the tree. So the intertestamental period then is the time frame occurring when? between the Old Testament period and the New Testament period. And sure enough, roughly speaking, there is about 400 years that occurred between the closing or the last authorship of an Old Testament book and the first authorship of a New Testament book. Most scholars today believe that there is roughly about 400 years time frame, so prior to Christ, where the Jews were essentially at that point deciding, yes, we have everything that should be considered the collection of the Old Testament book. This is further established by point B here. Jewish culture considered Genesis through Malachi to be their Bible. And they, uh, they regularly, they would uh, set aside, they would forsake later attempts at adding what's also known to us or known to us today, which we're gonna discuss in a little bit as the apocryphal books. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about the apocrypha in a moment. The point that I wanna make here is that the Jewish culture, remember the Old Testament uh, is, a, is the Jewish Bible. If you find a conservative Jew today, they will tell you, a non-Messianic Jew, they will tell you that the Old Testament is their Bible. It's not like the Christians use a different version of the Old Testament. Christianity is Judaism fulfilled. That's an incredibly important point to be discussed at a, another time. But remember that the Christianity is not something different than Judaism. It is Judaism fulfilled. And the Jews recognize Genesis through Malachi to be their canon of Old Testament books. Um, essentially, that's, that's what... Yeah, so the question is, wasn't God silent uh, between Malachi and John the Baptist? Those that would believe in the fulfillment of Judaism in the coming of Christ would say yes, that God was completely silent after Malachi until John the Baptist came on the scene. But 
Right. But then they might change you know, Jews at that point that are deciding that Christianity is not the fulfillment of Judaism would say God is still silent and, and has not, not spoken. Um, but, the, uh, but Christians that would see Christ as the fulfillment of Judaism would say that, yes, John the Baptist uh, was the, I don't want to say reawakening, but uh, the next prophet after a significant intertestamental period of silence. Yeah. Yeah. So before we get to that, so if you, when you look at the Old Testament um, and the authors of it, you know, Moses generally attributed to the first five books, including Genesis. But within Genesis, you have the period that Moses participated in, okay, the, the tablets and all the rest of that, where he was like a firsthand witness or had what we call the direct. But then you have the whatever, the creation, the, the thousands of years pre-Moses. Pre so of these, like, going back to the ABC, right? I mean, like, there are certain archaeological scrolls, other tablets from other cultures that, like, talk about a flood and, and stuff like that. So... To what extent do we, or maybe we don't, so what do we call the part of Genesis pre-Moses where he was a first-hand witness and kind of trying to record stuff? Yeah, so ultimately, if I was to try to reduce the question, the question is, what would we call Genesis um, in light of the fact that, that Moses is generally agreed to be the author of Genesis, but he wasn't there? Um, and to, uh, to be fair, all of Genesis does not include any information about Moses. Moses doesn't show up on the scene until Exodus. And to even be fair, all, uh, the beginning part of Exodus starts to account the history of Moses being born. So he's obviously not writing it while it's happening. So what we're looking at in terms of documenting what took place, um, it could have been, uh, ultimately, my, my simple answer to your question is, I don't know. I really don't know. What we, what we do know is that we believe, or many scholars believe, that Moses uh, decided to document uh, what took place in Genesis the way that we have it. And we would make the assumption, therefore, that Moses felt compelled by the responsibility that he held before God to document that so that the people of God could know their background. As you pointed out in your question, there are a variety of other cultures that document some things that are even similar to the text of Genesis. I, all I will give you at this point in answering the question, or by way of answering the question, is my own personal opinion. But ultimately, remember that Moses spent a significant amount of time alone with God when, they, when the people were around Sinai. And he spent so much time that when he would come down off the mountain, he would glow with like the mega sunburn, ready? Everybody was like, put a bag over your head. We can't handle being around you. Yeah, yeah. And, and so I have, a, I have a feeling that the extensive period of time that Moses was spending in the presence of God may have been a time frame. We know that Moses was up there with the explicit instruction from God, hey, write this law down. The people are going to need it, and you're going to take it down to them. 
I think that it could be a safe assumption that during that same interaction that God also provided for him, the history that was documented within Genesis, such that the people would understand what was taking place. But that is my personal opinion on that. We don't have anything definitive that would, I would say, hey, this is exactly what we know. Good. Um, okay, so the, on point C, answering, uh, still answering how was the canon created, looking at the Old Testament canon and points that would establish for us that the Old Testament canon uh, was, was probably, like scholars believe, uh, closed at f- around 400 BC. Uh, it is notable, I don't know if you've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls in point C. Uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, essentially some shepherds were walking around found a cave, walked into the cave in this Qumran area, I want to say, which is kind of roughly Egypt, uh, found this cave, walked into, found some jars, and the jars contained some scrolls dated, and here's the blank here, dated somewhere between the vicinity of 150 to 50 BC, 150 to 50 BC. And those scrolls contained everything that your and my Old Testament contains with the exception of the book of Esther. Why the exception of the book of Esther? I don't know. I couldn't tell you that. However, the point that I'm trying to make by expressing this to you is that by anywhere from 150 to 50 BC, there were communities of Jews during that time frame that believed that Genesis through Malachi was their Bible, that that was the section of the text that they should be working with. Um, that's, that's fairly significant, recognizing that those are closed, because that, clo- that recognition by those scrolls would have happened Uh, just a couple hundred years after what scholars are indicating would would have been the closure at that 400 BC time frame. Yeah. Yeah, it it really doesn't. Um, It doesn't. The question is, how did they date them? And my knowledge of um, parchment dating is not uh, not extensive. I will just say that ultimately speaking, um, archaeologists and scientists have a process by which they look at the constitution of the paper that was actually used. They look at the area in which the style in which the, the words were written, um, the way in which words are spelled and organized. And that's why they're able to kind of find these blocks of time frames based on the quality of the paper or the way that it was or, uh, or the structure in which the words were written or the type of ink that seems to be on there. That, that's what we understand was the way of writing during this time frame here. And so that's where they kind of come up with those, those dates and times. Uh, but if you put one of those in front of me, I would not be able to go, oh, well, obviously this is from, you know, that's, that's not me. Um, and then it is also notable, um, just to indicate point D, that later church councils confirmed the Jewish canon. So as the New Testament church started getting together, what they found in their decisions... Uh, was that the Old Testament, Genesis through Malachi, was indeed uh, what should be called the Old Testament canon. So <clears throat> this seems like a really good time to introduce this idea to you. Um, I don't have anything on your sheet. Don't start looking around for it. Um, but I remember the first time that I started studying this stuff. I became a little bit afraid And the reason why I was afraid, and I'm just kind of being personal for a moment here, the reason why I was uh, was afraid is that 
It was okay. It seemed like I could make arguments for Scripture being inspired, for Scripture being the words of God. But it was difficult for me to then establish, well, how do we know that we got it right when we put all of the books together? What if we were wrong in that process? In terms of the infallibility of God getting his message to mankind, that made sense to me. But what if we had compiled that message incorrectly and some of the stuff that I think is God's word is not actually God's word? I I became a little bit nervous about this process of determining what constitutes the canon. And I turned to uh, a man that he was, at that time, my theology teacher in my undergrad program. He ended up becoming a very significant mentor of mine in my undergrad program. And I, and I told him it would almost seem as though we have to believe that the Holy Spirit not only guided the writing of Scripture, but also the collection of Scripture. And he looked at me and he said, I think that's absolutely correct. I don't know if that's necessarily what I wanted to hear in that moment. What I wanted to hear was other stuff that would be able to support it. Um, But he recognized that there is a component here that you have to be willing to recognize that God is vested in the process of ensuring that mankind receives his message. And not only is he vested in making sure that the words got written down correctly, but also that they were collected correctly, such that you and I would be able to have that message for his stated purposes. That takes a little bit of faith. Now remember, when I defined faith, when we talked about apologetics, I never told you that faith was blind belief without reasons. That's not faith. However, What it does take is some commitment into the character of God, that God will, as he stated within his word, that God will preserve his word and will pass it on. So I'm going to admit to you that though I believe that there are some points that we need to recognize in terms of the compilation of the canon, we have to recognize that there's a point in which we also have to lean back on the Holy Spirit to have guided this whole process. And I, and I don't want to walk out of this room without throwing that out there. Okay? Does that, does that make sense? Okay. So then let's turn to the New Testament canon. Um, I want to look, we're not going to look at a ton of passages tonight, but I want to look uh, as point A at one of our author's opinions. If you'll open up one of the letters of Peter, 2 Peter, and go to 3.16. By the way, the numbers of Scripture, the verses, the chapters and verses, there's nothing inspired about them. However, similarly in response to, you know, saying that the Holy Spirit can get involved in things, it's interesting to study all the 3.16s, right? You, you see the football signs of 3.16. Uh, that's coming from John, right? But when I, when I quoted to you earlier, that uh, all scripture is God-breathed or theopneustos. That's interestingly in a 316. And interestingly, here's another 316 to kind of pick up. 2 Peter 316. Peter's getting close to closing out his letter, and he writes this. Um, Let's uh, start in 15. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul. So here's Peter writing about Paul. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters, and he speaks in them of these matters. 
There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other, what does your Bible say? Scriptures. Peter, writing this letter, based on from what we can tell, um, do I have this in here? Oh, no, this was just a point for it. Peter's let, this letter from Peter was probably written somewhere around 67 to 68 AD, indicates that in Peter's mind, what Paul was writing was to be equated with other scripture. That's notable because within about 30 years, of Jesus' physical body leaving the earth and going to sit at the right hand of the Father, his followers were already recognizing that other ones of his followers were writing out what they believed were texts that were equal to those that they would normally find in the Old Testament. That the scripture that they had decided that this constituted God's message to mankind could be equated even to the letters of Paul who was one of the last, who was the last of the apostles, if you define apostles by those that had a direct encounter with Jesus. That's fairly, that's fairly interesting to note as we're looking at the New Testament canon. So already within, within the time frame in which the New Testament letters are being written, they're starting to recognize that certain people had the ability to actually write divinely inspired texts. So a lot of arguments began uh, from that point on, and they really started to come to a head uh, around the, the turn of the first century until the Bishop of Alexandria, this is point B, the Bishop of Alexandria, whose name was Athanasius, he took a stand saying that the 27 books of the New Testament that you and I have today, the Matthew through Revelation, that those books were the divinely inspired canon of the New Testament. There was a, he was not the majority at that point, okay? You need to recognize this. But he was standing up explicitly using a significant position of authority. To be the Bishop of Alexandria might mean very little to you today. We don't have a system on which we, um, we rely on bishops very often, unless you're uh, an Anglican by, by history. Um, but the Bishop of Alexandria was essentially one of the primary religious leaders in the first and second century Christian church. Alexandria, uh, the, the area in kind of North, North Egypt area, which is where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, kind of that same similar area, was a major hub of first and second century Christendom. So for the the religious leader of that region to stand up and go, hey, Matthew through Revelation, I know you all are having lots of disagreements, but these 27 books, and he's not necessarily listing them out in order of Matthew through Revelation, but picking out the specific 27 of Matthew through Revelation, these are the ones that we should be considering to be the scripture of God that we would want to add to what we've already decided based on the Jewish assumption that the Old Testament would be added. Uh, around 150. Around 150 is when he, he did that. Now, the, the conversation continued from there. Don't get me wrong and say that it was 150 where everybody went, went yeah, 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 Athanasius has got it right. Yeah, okay, we're going to go with this. Instead, this became a continued issue of discussion until uh, the church started having some councils. And when we say councils, what we're saying is that the church 
sent out letters. We see uh, some examples of this in the book of Acts, right? They had the Jerusalem Council. This was a tradition started back to within just a few years of Jesus go, uh, leaving the earth. And the Jerusalem Council was to get together going, what are we supposed to do with the Gentiles? Do we have to make them Jews or do we not have to make them Jews? And so the, the church would get together to discuss these major matters. There were multiple councils that started to meet on the, okay, let's discuss what are we going to look at that's going to make the scriptures. Um, and there were two councils. The one that I primarily wanted to look at is the Council of Carthage. This is point C in 397. So in 397, ultimately, what became the New Testament that you and I have today was established by the church of the, that time frame, that that constituted what scripture was going to be. That's what the New Testament canon was going to be in 397. Yeah. They were essentially representatives of major geographical regions. So you'd have, you know, the you might have some Ephesian leaders and Galatian leaders and Corinthian leaders and Roman leaders, other Roman leaders and Jerusalem leaders. Um, so uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I believe Carthage is outside of Rome. Somebody that's with better history knowledge. What's that? It, it's it, it, is it? it? So it might even be in the Alexandrian region if it's in North Africa. Okay, thank you. Thank you for that. Um, pointing out that it's in, in the, kind of that same area where Athanasius was, was sharing the information. So they, they held the meeting there um, with representatives from all kinds of churches or all churches throughout what was the Greco-Roman Empire at that time. They met together and they started to establish the principles upon which they made the decision for the 27 books. This is point uh, 1A through D. Let's look at the principles that they looked at. Principle 1, uh, 1A. Uh, that it was apostolic, apostolic, A-P-O-S-T-O-L-I-C, apostolic. Was it written, what, the book that we're considering, was it written by an apostle or, an, or a direct disciple? Obviously, you'll recognize that the New Testament that you have is not written all by apostles, right? You, I mean, actually, uh, only two of the Gospels were written by apostles, um, and uh, let's see what else we, you know, we've got the book of Jude, uh, which is not an apostle. So you didn't necessarily have to be an apostle per se. However, according to their principles, you did have to be somebody that was like, you were the first in, you were on the ground floor of what was taking place. You either were a direct follower or you were so intricately connected to what was taking place that you might as well have easily been labeled as a direct follower. So that was the first principle that they looked at. Principle B, the content. They looked at the content. And what they would look at as they looked at the text is looking for a spiritual content and a consistency, not only between the books themselves of the New Testament, but also a consistency with the message that was coming from the Old Testament. Because remember, they were, they were legitimate followers of Jesus. They weren't looking to throw out the Old Testament because Jesus explicitly stated, I'm not here to abolish the law. The, the very jot and the tittle of the law will, will remain for, into all eternity. They're not looking to get rid of the Old Testament. So they even would search the consistency of the message with the Old Testament as well. Point C. They looked for universality, universality. 
And by universality, what they essentially were explaining or trying to assess is at this point in the late 300s, is the church, <clears throat> excuse me, is the church as a whole looking at these various books and letters that are being passed around? Are they looking at them as a special text, as a divinely inspired text, which is kind of getting ahead to point D, I might as well throw it out, inspiration, <clears throat> inspiration looking for the internal evidence of divine origin. Essentially, they're looking at these texts and going, uh, are we looking at some obscure text that just one little church out in Podunkville, uh, Crete, believes that it belongs to be part of scripture? Or are we looking at texts that everyone generally is starting to recognize the same Holy Spirit-like quality of the message therein? which is kind of an assessment both of point C and point D. Those were essentially the four things that they were looking for to establish. Now, don't get me wrong. When they all sat down for this meeting, they didn't immediately sit down and go, okay, well, we ought to be able to get this over with in about 10, 15 minutes because we're all agreeing that these 27 books are the ones that we're looking at. No, there was, there was a significant amount of discussion. You know, like the book of Hebrews, for a very long time, a lot of people were uncomfortable with it because they didn't know who wrote it. So you're looking at, well, is it apostolic? I, I, don't, I don't know if it's, if it's you know, Some people say that the book of Hebrews was written by Paul. Uh, other people were saying, no, Paul didn't actually write this down. There are, there are, there's maybe some fun discussion to be had about who wrote it down. Uh, the book of James was also not, uh, not real popular, even to the extent where Martin Luther, significantly later, was at times kind of looking at it going, I'm not really sure this even belongs here. That, this doesn't mean that everybody was looking at it going, yes, these 27 books are the 27 books that we're looking at. However, um, what, they, what they did come to the conclusion of, the, the decision of the council, was that the 27 books that you and I have, Matthew through Revelation, were the divinely inspired text of Scripture that had been preserved by the Holy Spirit for the purposes uh, of the church or for, for the church to receive. That's, how, that's when they determined that those canons were closed. So then let's ask this, this question, what's with the extra books? Okay, so what's with the extra books? Um, I want to refer to two different groups of books as we pop up. So let's talk about book one or point one, the Apocrypha. Uh, the Apocrypha is where um, we, that's often how Protestants refer to it. The Roman Catholic Church also refers to and prefers to refer to the apocryphal books as the deutero, and I wrote this word out for you, I believe, right? The deuterocanonical books. Notice even within that title, if you know anything about Greek, uh, Greek prefixes, deutero, like Deuteronomy is where we got that. That Deuteronomy is the second time what was uh, the second time the law was given to the people, right? Deutero means second. Canon, you're now familiar with that, right? The second collection of books. So even within that title, the Roman Catholic Church is recognizing that, yes, there is an Old Testament canon, but we have a second canon that we're going to try to add in as well. Now, I do not want, especially since this is being uh, recorded, I do not want uh, to cause any type of division and start to point out 
um, all of the improper reasons that the Roman Catholic Church has to establish their, um, their, their need or desire for the apocryphal books, for the deuterocanonical, the deuterocanonical books. However, just a couple of points I want to point out for you just real quickly. Um, point A, uh, the deuterocanonical books, the Apocrypha, was written during the intertestamental period. These were books that, as we have dated them, we've recognized that, uh, that they were written during the time frame between Malachi being written and when the New Testament books started to be written. Okay? So they were written during that time frame. Um, it is notable... Although there, I'm sure there would be, if I had a Roman Catholic priest here uh, establishing them, there might be some discussion or argument about this. Um, so I'm just going to put this out here and not necessarily discuss it. Um, but uh, most Protestant scholars will recognize that the apocryphal books do not have within them any claims to be the word of God, uh, which would be notable because the majority of the Old Testament actually does the opposite. It claims to be the word of God directly in, in the majority of the places of the Old Testament. It is also notable um, in point C that the apocryphal books were selected as part of the Bible during the Council of Trent. The Council of Trent occurred in A.D. 1546. 1546. Wow. Now, Again, I'm not, I, I, I have made it my mission because I'm naturally, by nature, in, in my heart, I am a bridge burner. I love seeing torched bridges. I just love it. And yet, as the Spirit has been work, working on my heart through all these years, I have been, hopefully, uh, God has been working within me to try to be a, a bridge builder. So I don't like sitting up here or standing up here and saying, um, here are all the danger things that you got to watch out for, and here's why your Roman Catholic brothers are completely wrong. I refer to them as our Roman Catholic brothers regularly because I, I, I believe in my heart uh, that there are many people within the Roman Catholic Church, just like there are many people within the Protestant Church that are legitimate followers of Jesus. However, the reverse is also true, that there are many people within the Roman Catholic Church that are not legitimate followers of Jesus, just like there are many people within the Protestant Church that are not legitimate followers of Jesus, okay? Just because you're on a certain team doesn't mean you're on the winning team, okay? That being said, it is interesting to note, or it should be noted, that when the Council of Trent occurred in 1546, that is, a, I'm not great at math, but that's significantly out after the Council of Carthage, is it not? 1,149 years. Thank you. It assumed, the Council of Carthage assumed the Old Testament canon had already been decided, assuming based on the Jewish conclusion that the Old Testament was done. So the Council of Carthage focused on the New Testament. So the very fact that the... They just asserted it at that point. So it is notable that 1,100 years afterwards is when a church council at this point, after significant changing and shaping of the church over a significant period of time, said, oh yeah, let's also throw these other books in here. Those should be considered as well. Um, there are a lot of reasons that a lot of scholars will point to to say that there were motivations of church practices that are established by those books that people wanted those books to be a part of scripture, that they were politically um, 
The, the expedient would be a good word. <laughs> I'm, I'm not necessarily. I'm telling you what people say. I'm telling you what people say. Um, personally, I, and I'm going to be very, very open and honest with you in that I have not spent a significant amount of time studying the apocryphal books. Um, I, I, I haven't. Uh, I have leaned on my own Christian tradition that essentially has believed a lot of these things for these reasons, that the Apocrypha is not where I'm going to spend my time seeking for the Word of God. Um, I could be wrong, like I said, uh, but those are the reasons that are established that are out there. Yeah. It is significant to recognize um, yes, thanks for pointing that out, that the Protestant Reformation occurred within essentially that same time frame, that 1500s time frame, and that the, um, it is uh, in some circles believed, which is what your point is, that, the, that that council was gathering together saying, hey, we have to establish these things that may slip away as a result of the Protestant Reformation, and we've got to be able to establish them from Scripture. So maybe these books right here might establish those things. That's, that's what some Protestant scholars would believe would be some of the motivating factor behind that council espousing the apocryphal books. So, then, so from the time of Martin and Luther on, so if you say he's kind of the start of Protestantism, even though there's a few others, the Protestants never had them in? I don't like those terms. I never like saying things never and making universal and general terms because remember that even after the Council of Carthage, there was a significant amount of disagreement amongst the church still, some, some murmuring and mumbling of like, maybe this doesn't belong here or maybe, yeah, that type of thing. Um, however, the general, I, I know you like, you're looking for a black and white answer that I'm going to completely avoid, but the general thrust of the church was, I don't want to say never, rarely to add books to the Bible. The discussions were more about trying to take away books that had already been established as Scripture. It was rarely to add. So it was, uh, it was not a notable and widespread movement among Protestants to say, yes, we need to add these apocryphal books. The discussions were more like, does the book of James really belong in the New Testament? As opposed to, oh yeah, we also need these other ones over here. So that was more the, the undercurrent of what was going on. And that, that's a good segue to uh, this group two uh, of the pseudepigrapha. Now the pseudepigrapha, uh, point two, Literally, point A means false writings. That's actually what the word means. Pseudo, meaning false, and um, graphe, meaning writing. Uh, the false writings. The pseudepigrapha is not inherently a collection of books. Uh, it is not inherently Old Testament or New Testament. It is, point B, more of a technique in writing. That there were a variety of, pe of, a variety of people for a variety of reasons, writing things down, claiming to represent notable authors. But the church itself widely rejected those texts as being legitimate. That's why they categorized them as pseudepigrapha. So why are we still talking about them? Well, even most notably, recently, point C here, 
um, we saw a resurgence of the Gnostic Gospels, things like the Gospel of Thomas. Now, that would be significant, right? Because is Thomas an apostle? Yeah, if, if the Thomas that we're talking about is the doubting Thomas, yes, he would be an apostle. So it would be really helpful to have uh, a gospel written down by him as well, right? Or the secret book of James. Um, the problem with the Gnostic Gospels, uh, here's uh, point C1 here, is that the earliest dating that we can find is mid-2nd century. So this stuff is being written down literally about 100 years after the majority of the texts of the New Testament actually being written. So a hundred years later, we started having these new books being written down claiming to be the, the found gospel of Thomas or the secret book of James. And there's a variety of them. And they gained a lot of popularity, uh, even in pop culture uh, with, uh, I think most recently it was within the, the Da Vinci Code, that's what it was, Da Vinci Code, right? But that was just indicative. I'm not going to like say, oh my gosh, if you read that book, you're going to hell. I've heard that. That's not necessarily true. Um, we're all destined for hell without Jesus anyway. Let's just get that out there, right? Uh, but the point is, there was some popularity that kind of resurged, and I won't jump into all the rest of the academic stuff that was happening behind the scenes, but people were saying, hey, we found all this lost information that should have been part of the New Testament canon. Um, and instead, as scholars have looked at them, they've recognized that these books are probably better categorized as pseudepigraphal books, that these were books, yeah, they were wannabes. That's a, that's a good, good thing to, uh, to categorize them as. They had important people's names associated with them, but when they were actually evaluated by the principles that the church had been using, uh, they recognized that these were not the inspired word of God and did not belong in the New Testament canon. Yeah. Mid-second century. Yeah. Second. Does that mean that somebody, because Thomas wasn't alive then, so somebody was like kind of fraudulently by book by Thomas and fraudulently passed Yeah, so the, the question is, um, was did, are they saying that Thomas wrote it down um, or that somebody else wrote it down saying that it was Thomas? Um, ultimately, at the time, they were saying that, hey, we found this book that Thomas wrote. At, the point that, at that point, they didn't have the same methods of scholarship to be able to determine the veracity of things, and so the book kind of persisted. What they had instead at that time that caused them to reject it was the internal information, just going, this is not consistent with the message. It doesn't seem to, doesn't, it doesn't feel like the Holy Spirit is behind it. It doesn't have the same um, universal acceptance. And then later scholarship has been able to come along and gone, no, this, is, this was written down 100 years after Thomas was even walking the earth. It's not possible for him to have even written it down. They just didn't have access to all that information at the time. If there's, what was the motivation? Where do you think the motivation was behind that? Yeah, so the question is, what's the motivation behind that? People have all kinds of reasons for doing the things that they want, but one of the main things, and the reason that I that I've categorized them here as Gnostic Gospels. The first cult of Christianity was known as Gnosticism. And you'll even see in some of, John was the latest writer of the New Testament. And he starts to already in, within his texts, respond to some Gnostic ideas that are starting to become popular in the culture. 
And one of the beliefs is that some of these pseudepigraphal writings were to try to establish Gnostic teachings at, the, at, at that time. Um, I'm sure that there are other reasons, but the reason why I like talking about the Gnostic Gospels is because even within the New Testament, as you and I read it, we start to see John combating these Gnostic ideas. Um, and so there... Would I consider it of Satan? It's certainly, uh, it, it's, it's certainly dangerous to write something down and say, hey, here's the word of God when you know it's not. So uh, that's, that would sound like a lie. Satan being the father of lies, I think you probably could make the connection. Yeah, uh, were the Gnostic Gospels officially uh, associated with mysticism? Yes, the Gnostic heresy and the Gnostic cult was a mystical cult. Um, I'll maybe just drop this bomb here and then leave it over here. The Gnostic, the Gnostic uh, cult essentially uh, grew into the modern version of Freemasonry as we have studied it. Um, and when you study Freemasonry, you realize that it goes back to the mystical ideas first held by the Gnostics. Um, but yes, it was very much a mystical concept. There was a hand that popped up over here. Did I answer your question or do you still have it? I only caught it out of my peripheral. Correct. Okay. Correct. Yeah, they're, they're looking at similar to the question that was earlier. Um, they're, they're using the method that they have, the archaeological method that they have of looking at the copy that they have going. We don't have anything that would indicate the either the text or the manner in which it was written that this would be any older than second century. Did that answer your question? Yes. Okay, great. All right. So then let's um, let's go to the next section, because ultimately that kind of answers questions about the canon. The next section I am going to do much quicker. So if this is dragged on for you, um, good news, the next section will be much quicker, but still have a ton of information in it. Uh, because what I want to ask is that, okay, so we've, we've established why the church believes the canon is what it is. So how did that work its way from the canon of the Old and the New Testament to the English Bible that sits in front of you today? Let's walk through that journey. I'm going to quickly introduce some ideas to you. Um, this is, and again, this is just an introductory course, so we're not going to dive deep into everything, but hopefully so you'll be exposed to some key, key phrases. Um, so what's the, what's the rationale behind the different English versions and the translations of Scripture? What are their differences? Number one, uh, point A, first let's talk about text families. A couple of things that you need to be familiar with. Number one, the Septuagint. Have you ever had this experience where you're studying something in the New Testament and you see because of your English version that, that the writer is quoting an Old Testament passage and you're like, oh, I want to go read that Old Testament passage and get that section in context. And you flip over to the Old Testament passage and it reads very differently than it does in the New Testament. And if you're anything like me, a classic overthinker, you immediately go, ah, an inconsistency in scripture. This apostle is saying that the Old Testament is saying this, but the Old Testament is not saying that. That's a problem. We'll talk a little bit about that next week. You'll be okay. If you are like me, I apologize. There are medications that help. <laughs> uh, 
but the, the primary rationale for that is because New Testament Christians primarily were using as their source of the Old Testament a translation of the Old Testament that's referred to as the Septuagint. It is abbreviated often as the LXX, so you'll see that in the literature at times. The Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. Remember, Christianity began first with the Jews, so they could search the Old Testament scriptures in Hebrew, and they'd be okay. The problem is, if you're growing up in Sicily, you don't know Hebrew. You know Greek, and you know Latin, if we're talking about first century. So you're going to need something else. You can learn Hebrew if you want to, but at that point, why don't you just read something else? And so they've put together, or the, the church put together a translation of the Hebrew canon, and it's referred to these days as the Septuagint. Often then the translation that's used for the quotation in those moments where you're reading that New Testament section going, hey, this doesn't really match. That translation is actually indicative of what they would have found in the Septuagint, not necessarily a, the best translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Okay, that's the first thing. Second thing that I want to talk about, let's talk about the Textus Receptus or also referred to as the majority text and the Vulgate. So like I said, if you weren't Hebrew during that time frame and you needed to have the, the collection of scripture to discuss, uh, there, there became an effort to put together a Latin version of the entirety of the Bible. A guy by the name of Jerome was paid um, by the, the head of the empire, hey, we need you to, to copy down into Latin the entirety of scripture. Did that around uh, 400 AD, he was writing this down. And it was written down with the best collection of manuscripts that they had during that time frame. That collection of manuscripts that were used, especially with reference to the New Testament, are referred to as the majority text or the Textus Receptus. That's what was used to translate the New Testament into Latin so that people could read it. Were they translating from Greek or Hebrew? So they were translating it uh, from the Greek texts into Latin, right. primarily working with the New Testament. Okay, Primarily working with the... With that, and then um, the portions of the Old Testament that were translated, they were translating it from the from the Septuagint into Latin during that time frame. Okay, that is a very different collection. I said it very quickly, and you may not have caught it. He used the collection of manuscripts that were available at that time. Well, here's what's exciting about archaeology: we're constantly digging up new stuff, right? We sweep off some new sand and oh my gosh, we got another collection of stuff here. Since that time frame, we found a whole lot of other manuscripts and we've talked and referred to multiple times of the science of textual criticism where we take these manuscripts and we start to, through the scientific method of textual criticism, start to compile what the original text must have been based on the manuscripts that we're finding. Those groups of manuscripts are now put together in collections, which you have here in point three, the BHS and the UBS texts, the BHS and the UBS texts. The BHS is the rep representation of the Old Testament stuff, the, ready? Uh, ready for the Latin, Latin term, the Biblia Hebraica Stuttgartensia, right? So 
those Germans in Stuttgart, they, they hold that text. That's where kind of like the, where it was started to put together using all the manuscripts of the Old Testament collected using textual criticism to try to form, hey, this is what we can tell is the best form of the Old Testament. Similarly, the United Bible Society, also referred to as the Nestle Allen text, is what they did with the New Testament text. These are the texts that were compiled through the science of textual criticism. Hold that thought. I needed you to understand that concept when we then turn to uh, a later idea, okay? So point B, I want to talk to you about translation concepts. Point B is to talk to you about translation concepts. And what we're talking about here is when we're asking the question, how do we have all these different English versions? It's because what are we going to use as our main source of manuscripts? That ought to click a light bulb on of what we've just discussed. And what is the method that we're going to use to translate those manuscripts into the language that we're putting the text in. So in our, for our sake, we'll talk just about English texts, okay? So there are kind of three different ways of thinking. Way one is a word-for-word -word translation, also known officially as formal equivalence, formal equivalence. That essentially, here's the Hebrew word, here's our best understanding of that Hebrew word in English, so we write down the English word. Similarly, for the New Testament, here's the Greek word. Here's the best understanding we have of a translation for it in English, and we write it down. And we try to do that the best we can, word for word. That's one way of thinking about translating. The Jewish scribes were known for doing that, copying down every jot and tittle the way it was. Yeah, and what we're not talking about, um, you're right, that the Jewish scribes were known for copying things word for word. What we are talking about is... <clears throat> how would we get the English text that we would have? And so what they would do is take little piece by little piece and try to get it as close as we can to match the English definition. Now, here's the, um, here's the thing, just understanding this concept. So have, how many of the people in the room have learned another language? I'm not saying, I'm not going to quiz you. I'm not going to make you, you know, like say, all right, so start speaking French to me or whatever the case is. <laughs> all right. One of the things that you learn when you learn another language is that your teacher will tell you generally this word means this, right? But there's a range of meanings typically, right? So here's the issue with trying to do a word for word translation is that in both Hebrew and Greek, just like in English, there are a range of meanings that may be available. So when you're trying to do a word for word translation, which one do you pick? That's what they're working with and that's their translation issue. Translation concept number two or a different method is, okay, so if we're gonna talk about the range of possibilities, instead, why don't we do a sentence for sentence translation, a sentence for sentence. This is what's known in the translation world as functional equivalence. So right now, we're not gonna worry so much about a word-to-word, one-to-one correspondence because there's a range of meaning. Instead, we're gonna look at how that word is being used in context, get the idea that is contextually there, and translate that into what would essentially be the same idea in the English language. That would be that translation scheme, okay? So that starts to, so we got a strength. Hey, we're starting to make up for the range of meaning, 
But now your translators are now making decisions for you, right? Instead of just laying down the word, now they're, they're telling you this is what meaning we think this word is being used or how it's being used. And we're going to write that down, strengths and weaknesses. Or idea three, which is hard to call it a translation, but nonetheless, let's throw it in there, an idea for an idea translation. So, okay, we are not going to stress about a word-for-word -word correspondence. We're not going to stress about sentence-for-sentence -sentence correspondence. What we're going to do is we're going to look at the whole idea that's trying to be expressed, and we're going to, generally speaking, try to put that into a way that English readers would accept that and understand what's being discussed. Those are the different ways that you would translate and the different texts that they would use. Hopefully that all makes sense. Not if it makes general sense. Okay, so then, at least because it makes sense to two of you, let's move on. <laughs> common, so then let's talk about common translations and their relationship to these ideas. Before we do this, I will refer back to the same mentor that I introduced you to earlier and say, uh, take his line or his idea and say that I hate that people argue about which translations are best of the scripture. Friends, they're all bad. They're a translation. We don't necessarily know exactly what, what might be the best translation of it. We are limited by the limitations of our own language and the limitations of the language in which those words were originally expressed. They're all bad. And the other thing that needs to be put out there is that there are people, maybe you know them, maybe you were them, maybe you've heard of them. There are people that would believe that you must use only this one translation of the text. That is the only divinely inspired version of the text. And they will, they're willing to burn the bridge between you and them if you would try to get them to use any other version of the text. My friends, if that's going to be where your bridge is going to burn, don't even argue. Okay? Don't. As long as they're reading the Bible, we're headed in a good direction. Okay? That's what we really want. If you want to say that only this English Bible is the only one, okay, that's fine. Take the one that you want. Let's talk about that one. Totally not worth arguing about, okay? As long as people are looking at the Bible. That being said, I'm gonna share with you some common English translations and their kind of concepts behind them. So let's talk about the 1611 King James, often referred to as the authorized version. This is a version and there are many, uh, I come from a generally speaking, generally loosely speaking Baptist tradition. And there are many Baptist churches to this day that will refuse to use anything other than the 1611 version of the King James. Great. If you guys want to use the 1611 version of the King James, go right ahead. Get all your yees and these and thous and all that kind of stuff. Get, get your fill of that. Here's the thing. The King James was ultimately a translation that was put together from the text, from the Textus Receptus. The Textus Receptus. Now, like I told you, that was a great group of manuscripts at the time in which it was put together for the Latin Vulgate. But we found so many other manuscripts that showed us that maybe some of the stuff of the Texas Receptus wasn't the best version uh, to work with for your translation. So ultimately, what became the basis for the translation of the, of the 1611 version of the King James 
uh, was ultimately not necessarily the best that we could provide manuscript-wise. Um, is that a major problem? No, not really, but it is an issue if you're looking to try to get as close as you possibly can to the original text. The New King James tried to pop up on the scene and fix that stuff. Well, we don't want to offend those that are thinking that the 1611 is the only version that you can use, but we have some new stuff that we probably should put in there. So they put all kinds of footnotes in there and kind of change the words just a little bit to reflect the better uh, group of texts from the BHS text or the UBS text. But uh, at the end of the day, it was still kind of using as its main source uh, that King James Version. Um, other other uh, versions that you might come into contact with, and I'll now really accelerate here, you might come into contact with the American Standard or the New American Standard Bibles. Yeah. <laughs> the only inspired text, apparently. Uh, <laughs> So uh, in these versions, these were actually, um, these used the BHS and the UBS as their sources of manuscripts um, and had a translation concept or a translation theory trying to maintain a word-for-word -word translation. We recognize that not everybody can learn the original language, so let's get them as close as we can in word-for-word, -word, even if that makes funky English sentences. So that's what they refer to as woodenly literal. If you go online and try to search some of the stuff, they'll say it's woodenly literal. What they're describing is that it might not necessarily make for the easiest of reading all the time, because what they're trying to do is get a word-for-word -word equivalence to the original texts. So there was a group that got together and said, you know what, we're not really loving this word-for-word -word thing. Um, it's making sentences kind of funky and people don't like to read it as much. And so they put together what's called the New International Version of the Scriptures. If you've ever gotten a free Bible given to you, it was either a King James or it was an NIV. A lot of that had more to do with publishing rights than anything else. But uh, what the NIV did is they used the same group of texts, the BHS and the UBS texts, but what they did is they worked more with the functional equivalents. We're not going to worry so much about the word for word. We're going to do more of a sentence for sentence translation. As a result, the NIV makes some decisions for you that if you don't know the original text or don't have access to tools that would teach you the original languages, then you kind of have to go with the way that the NIV translators have made those decisions for you. Um, strengths and weaknesses. It reads a little bit smoother, but they've made some decisions for you that may not always be the best decisions. A recent version that we use very commonly at our church, uh, which is why I picked it for our discussion, is the English Standard Version. You're not going to do the, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. no, no, okay, <laughs> no, not going to do it. <laughs> Uh, it was, it's kind of funny. I don't know if you know this, a little bit of the insight into the life of Sierra Bible Church. You know when all the guys go around in the services and they have to pass out the texts? They have to figure out who's speaking ahead of time because Wayne would speak out of the NAS, Jesse would speak out of the ESV. And so the ushers are like, do we use the thin Bibles or the thick Bibles? And you got to tell them ahead of time. It's fun. <laughs> it's just part of the life of our church. It's the ESV. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I don't care, as long as people are reading the Bible, that's all I care about. Uh, but the ESV is, uh, by their own words, the essentially literal translation. That's what they set out to do, and this was done, whereas the NAS and the NIV were done in like the 50s through the 70s, uh, the ESV was done uh, early 2000s. I want to say like 2001 to 2003, somewhere in that time frame. And that, was to, that basically tried to bridge the gap between the decisions the NIV 
committee was making, and the, but still maintaining some word-for-word -word thing. However, what you'll also notice is that it started to become, here's what I, I just always giggle about it. I don't know if I giggle, but um, I always kind of raise an eyebrow, is that it, because political correctness was also coming in there, you'll start to see some intentional decision for gender-neutral languages, or, oh, relax, people, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Or, you know, when Paul will actually write the word brothers, I wrote this to you, brothers will have a little number to it. And you'll look at the number of the footnote and it'll say, it could mean brothers or sisters. Like, okay, we, we, no, relax. It's not a big deal. It's not. But it's just recognizing what's going on. So in the head of those translators, they're, they're translating within a culture and to a people group that's there during that time frame. Okay, so they, they were wanting a Bible that they felt like could be accessible to their culture. Um, last, let's talk about paraphrases that you might uh, come across. Maybe some of you have seen the Living Bible or the New Living Translation um, or uh, my personal favorite, the Message. Um, this is not essentially, like I said, this probably, looking back at translation concepts, is not really a translation because this is more an idea for idea communication. It's not a word for word or even a sentence for sentence, but what's being discussed and what's the best way to say it in the language that it's being received. Sometimes what I will do in, as I prepare for messages, like I told you, like I like the message uh, by Eugene Peterson. Uh, it's not a translation, but what you can do nicely is after you've done your, um, your exegetical work to try to determine the original intent of the text, you can look how Eugene Peterson made that decision and sometimes says things in a way, uh, in an English way, that kind of conveys that idea and drives it home in a slightly different way. Um, that's where paraphrases can be really useful. Paraphrases can also be really useful to people that have really low levels of literacy. Um, I work uh, pretty tightly with the educational system, and it is uh, ridiculously frightening about how illiterate our culture currently is. Um, and sometimes, trying to put even an ESV or an NIV in front of somebody, it's tough for them to read. And if we're starting their discipleship journey, what we want them to understand is the truths of our faith, the, uh, the concepts of our faith. And maybe a paraphrase is a good way to introduce that stuff to them. All these things have a role. None of them are the divinely inspired text because they're all translations and they're all bad, okay? They're all, they all have weaknesses to them in some way, shape, or form. That being said, because I've now repeated that they're all bad like multiple times, we are abundantly blessed as English speakers because the scholarship available to the translation of the English text is some of the best in the world. We've got some good stuff accessible to us. You don't have to have advanced theological degrees to understand the English text of the scripture, which is a huge blessing. Text to watch out for. I'm sure you're recognizing that by this point that translations can be done with an agenda, right? Canons can be compiled with an agenda and translation can be compiled with it. So when I was uh, in Bible college, uh, I used to love when the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons would come to my door, I would invite them in and we would have all kinds of discussions because it made me a stronger Christian. I wanted to find what, what was I wrong in? What did I need to be corrected in? It's always uncomfortable, but I always learned. The Jehovah's Witnesses, I don't know if you're aware of this, they have their own translation of the Bible, which is really convenient if you're trying to have a cult. Because what you want is not the original version of the Bible, but the version of the Bible that's going to be translated in such a way that supports your cultic views. Uh, most notably, 
because Jehovah cannot be triune in Jehovah's Witness theology, uh, it's pretty difficult to refer to Jesus as the Word and to refer to the Word as God. So the, the JDub Bible, the New, Word tra- the New World Translation, translates John 1.1 1, 1, that the Word was a God, not that the Word was God. And then they will theologically explain to you why that establishes that Jesus was not God. That's really convenient if you want to have a, a uh, Jehovah's Witness heresy available to you, but in terms of actual scholarship, um, textual criticism, and the way that you would translate, that's not the effective way of translating that. Similarly, not quite as popular, but Joseph Smith actually translated uh, the Bible as well. Um, not very well done, but there are some fundamentalist Mormons that really appreciate uh, the Jehovah's, I'm sorry, the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. Just Note that there are a variety of scriptural translations. Some are better than others for a variety of reasons that hopefully you are now equipped with uh, to be able to ask those questions. Um, That being said, just be aware that sometimes people have an agenda for why they are translating the Bible that way. And sometimes that agenda is to make money. That being said, sometimes, yeah, sometimes. Let's conclude. Two points of conclusion. Number one, uh, I hope that you have recognized that it has been a significant effort that God has gone through to guide not only the words of Scripture, but its collection, its spread, and ultimately its translation. Second point, the Bible that you hold in your hand uh, has been preserved for your benefit. Uh, You will hear me say multiple times over that the kingdom of God is not about you individually, and that's great. But balance that statement out. And I I am struck, uh, if you were here last week, the moment that I started praying um, to try to close our evening, I couldn't even start the prayer and started crying uncontrollably and had to get a hold of myself. The reason why, part of it is because I'm becoming a sap in my older age, but the other part is the, the... image that will be forever blazoned in my mind is some of our uh, brothers and sisters over in communist China opening up a cardboard box of cheapo Bibles that you and I would just probably use to, to fix a wobbly table. And they are bawling their eyes out and singing praises to God that they finally have a Bible in a language that they can read. You and I having access to this book means that we have access to some of the most significant power that our culture could ever encounter. And it is beautiful, lest we not forget how wonderful it is that we have such easy access. I have like 15 copies of this book in different translations in my house alone. That is a a wild blessing that you and I too often take for granted. Let's stop that, at least for a while, okay? Uh, Let me pray and we'll close our time. God, I thank you for the evening. I thank you that you have given us the opportunity to study. I thank you for the collaboration and the interaction that we've had this evening with one another. I pray that you would protect my brothers and sisters in this room, that you would guard their hearts and minds, um, that as they encounter the ideas and the thoughts of the world upon leaving this room, uh, that they would know where to turn uh, to combat the falsity that is so pervasive in our culture. Do not let us fall to common opinions as though they are true. We search for your word and we know that your word is truth. Guide us by it, please. Amen.